Okay, let's let's get going here. I uh, am very impressed at the attendance, given this is the most beautiful winter day that I've seen without snow in 15 years, and I'm sure everybody is revved up for the Super Bowl. <laughs> but I'm impressed with this, so thanks for coming. And Wayne has our devotional today. So my devotional is on a poem I'm going to recite by E. Cummings, but before I do that, I'll talk a little bit of why I chose this poem. Uh, I first read this, I was instantly reminded of a little rural church I attended when I was about six or seven years old. Uh, My sister and I stayed for a summer in Montana with my mother who was attending to her mother, my my grandmother, um, who was ill at the time. And... uh, when I read this poem, I thought about this place. It was a built in the early part of the 20th century, a perfect little European church. Actually, it had stained glass windows, verses in Dutch. It was obviously a Christian Reformed Dutch church. And uh, at night, I could hear, on Saturday night, you could hear the bells ringing across the field. So it was quite picturesque. So when I read this, I thought immediately on it. But before I go beyond, I want to go beyond this. Um, what... Uh, the poet was exemplifying. I think it shows the humbleness of what Christianity is. It's in a kind of a transcendental prose, but I think it really, at least it hit my my heart. To the ordinary lives of ordinary people, a little church like brings not something remote, but something that surrounds us in reality. This group, this church, um, you read the Bible verses, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many of us were noble birth. Uh, the famous verse in Philippians, who being in nature God, talking about Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. So to go through Christian life for me is to know that we must be humble always before God, and being humble means being vulnerable. It means to be truthful with ourselves, who we really are before God, and know that he was once one of us, so he can understand, sympathize, and even empathize with our strivings. Being vulnerable before God means ultimately to care only about what we can do with the single lives God has given us, and not so much to care about all the power struggles around us. We're not to desire to have power over others and to rule, dominate, or even win arguments with others. We are called to love God and our fellow humans and seeking to understand who we are, who they are, and how we can best serve them. Now, serving others doesn't necessarily mean in a position of authority over them. What I read in the Bible, Christ never asserted himself over others except as they themselves followed him and acknowledged who he was. He was Lord of the universe. And so it is with us. Personally, I'm tired of power relationships and politics. They are a fact of life. Always have been. But this does not mean we have to be a part of it. Vulnerability seems to me the common hallmark of a person I always look up to an example and one to listen to and possibly follow within the will of Christ. Following God through his son is the hardest, most disciplined, constantly monitoring behavior one can ever do. And I have to admit, I failed miserably at it many times. And it is similar 
as the pastor said this morning, to striving for the Beatitudes. It's like the little toddler attempting to grab the chair and failing time and time again, and yet it does not discourage her from continuing to try. So the point is, life is here for the here and now. We must all examine our lives as how we live in the will of God and then live our lives to the fullest because this is God's will for us as his creation. Anyway, here is the poem. It's called The Little Church by E.E. Cummings. I am a little church, no great cathedral. Far from the splendor and squalor of hurrying cities, I do not worry if briefer days grow briefest. I am not sorry when sun and rain make April. My life is the life of the reaper and the sower. My prayers are prayers of earth's own clumsily striving finding and losing and laughing and crying as children whose any sadness or joy is my grief or my gladness. Around me surges a miracle of unceasing birth and glory and death and resurrection. Over my sleeping self float floating symbols of hope, and I wake to a perfect patience of mountains. I am a little church far from the frantic world with its rapture and anguish at peace with nature. I do not worry if longer nights grow longest. I am not sorry when silence becomes singing. Winter by spring, I lift my diminutive spire to merciful him whose only now is forever. Standing erect in the deathless truth of his presence, welcoming humbly his light and proudly his darkness. Thank you. That's terrific. Thank you. And speaking of how good that was, there are three slots left for people to take, and they are the last three of the year. So I really encourage you, the, the sign-up sheet's over here. I really would sort of, you know, an ego thing with me to have every slot filled by a member of the class, okay, because these things are really, really good. I hope, I hope if you have not done this yet that you'll um, realize you've got an eloquence and can do it, okay, so... Um, somebody asked earlier, we are meeting today, and we obviously, and we're meeting next week, and then you have the two weeks off. It's the 16th and 23rd that we don't meet, and then we come back and uh, and pick back up. So, um, and I want to, okay. So today's lesson is a little bit different in that. Um, 2 Corinthians is a book that I don't need to give a lot of background to. It, the background to it's not all that interesting. It's sort of like 1 Corinthians with the exception that it does have some. It's very interesting to scholars because at the end of chapter 9, chapters 1 to 9 are pretty warm, friendly tone between Paul and the Corinthians, which even despite all of his arguments or all of the questions and answers that he engaged them in last time. It was still obviously a, a really strong relationship. But then in chapter 10, he sort of 
you know, turns completely the opposite and, uh, and is very angry with them. And most scholars think that that is, that 2 Corinthians is actually anywhere from two fragments of two to five letters that have been put together. Um, I think what I, you know, and there's, there's material here kind of in the introduction, if, in the introduction I've got, if you want to follow that, I think that that's, uh, that's not as interesting as what I would like to do with, with 2 Corinthians, which is really talk about, um, there really are three to five sort of key passages that have often come down to the church or to, to individual Christians across the ages as really significant passages. Uh, and they're not, they really could be anywhere. They're not particularly related to, you know, Corinthians or the relationship between Paul and Corinth. I mean, they somewhat are. But I think I would like us to spend time on those. And I want to do the, the class today in a little bit different format, and that is to look at these passages and then have you discuss them at your table. So we'll be going back and forth between the whole group presentation and, and the discussion. Um, and part of these, a couple of these passages, it may be that these passages are not familiar to, to any of you. Some of them may be familiar to some of you just because they sort of have an independent life in the church um, and they have uh, a, a really strong pastoral life with um, with some of them. So the one I want to talk about first is uh, is the treasure in earthen vessels uh, passage, which starts in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, it's, I'm going to read 1 through 12. I want to read it and then uh, give a little bit of background on it and and then talk. It's called Treasure in Clay Jars in the NRSV. I learned it as Treasure in Earthen Vessels. Uh, so it's 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 on page 2066. And, and again, this is, this is in the part of the letter where Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is, is very strong and, and cordial. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry together, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus Christ. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. This relates to part of this first paragraph relates to part of what's going on in 2 Corinthians, which is in Paul's continuing uh, battle with the people who are his opponents in the Corinthian church. Uh, he continues to point to um, sort of preaching Christ and Christ crucified as, a, as opposed to preaching himself. And um, and, and he's obviously accusing 
his opponents as being people who uh, who put a lot of stock in their own eloquence or beauty or wisdom or knowledge. And he, he is really along the lines of your poem today. He's really trying to present himself as a, as a humble person, which I know is hard to see from some of his letters and some of the reactions. But it, it's interesting because there are there's so there's so much in um, in Protestantism in, Pro, in Protestantism in America that um, that we all get we it is very easy to get caught up in the personality of a charismatic leader and that is particularly true uh, in the Protestant Church I mean from the Great Awakening on in the revivalistic heritage to TV preachers and and self-help, it's just very easy for for any of us to be to be caught up by the charisma of, of a leader. And Presbyterians are pretty good at combating that, but that's also one of the reasons that we're not a very significant part of the of the population because we we really do uh, have something of a distrust of the of of the great charismatic leader, although. Everybody, even in Roman Catholic circles, where you know the personality of the priest is not supposed to have anything to do with the effect, efficaciousness of the mass. Uh, whenever you get a good priest that people like, people start coming to church. I mean, it's sort of human nature. And Paul's just trying to to say that's not what we're about. That what we're about is an open statement of the truth. Uh, and then he goes into it's verse seven where this image comes forward. But we have this treasure in clay jars or earthen vessels so that it be so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The, the last verses of that are, are the, you know, Paul really does get rhetorically poetic. He's got a good cadence to some of his writing, and so afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken. I mean that language soars. It's really it's really beautiful language and it's and it's encouraging language. But the phrase that is famous is but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. He's almost saying that um that because the church is such a human institution, such an earthen vessel, um, that the church can never, or the preacher can never be mistaken for being God, the, the treasure of God. That's really the argument he's making. But what what I would like you to do is um, is let's turn over to page well to the discussion questions now on the back because the first one is what I, I want you to talk about. Um, and as I say, Second Corinthians has some fairly well-known passages, verses, or even phrases that are fraught with wisdom. 
even if they rise somewhat ab- above the context of conflict in which Paul writes them. Many of these questions speak to the meaning out of or above the context in which they were written. So at 4.7, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Um, the place that I most know this phrase is is when, as, as a pastor, you know, either from my own experience or in helping others, uh, when people have a significant disappointment with the church. Um, and that disappointment can be um, it just not being all that good. You know, it can be a disappointment of competence or a disappointment of sort of lifelessness. Or it can be a disappointment of being hurt by the church. You know, whether that's something the minister says or whether it's a position the church takes or, you know, whether it's a conflict. They're all, all measure of reasons that people, uh, that people get hurt uh, in their experience of a particular church. And so, uh, often, you know, we then find ourselves saying, and not, and not trying to be defensive, we have this treasure of faith, yes, but it comes to us in earthen vessels, in human beings, in human institutions, you know, that, that are inevitably going to let us down and, and sometimes hurt us. So what, I, what I'd like you to think about using this phrase is, you know, where in your life, and these, these questions today are going to be somewhat personal, so I, I would encourage you to share um, and, and trust your, the people at your table if you're willing, willing to do that. Uh, but where in your life do you experience treasure embedded within earthen vessels? In your relationships, in your family, in your work, where do you experience the tension between a treasure that's at the heart of what you're doing and the earthen vessel that is where you're doing it or who you're doing it with or in what context you're doing it. And then secondly, and you can discuss these as in a natural order, you know, how do you experience the church and indeed Christianity itself or you know, Judaism itself as a treasure in an earthen vessel? Do you all understand what I'm asking? Okay. <laughs> you don't? Okay. I really don't. I mean, I have a, a sense of earthen vessels and, and people and treasure, but I'm not sure what you're asking. Yeah, I guess I'm asking for you to share a, share a story or experience, uh, a time when, uh, when maybe the earthenness of the vessel drove you away. Or when maybe the treasure within kept you there. How's that? That's much Okay. Okay. And I'm not talking about archaeology either. I'm using this language symbolically. Okay, Joanne. <laughs> so I heard something about Egyptians buried. No, talking about it. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what Gail said. Yeah, okay. I'm just talking about this, the symbolism of it. So share with this. I'll give you about ten minutes on this, okay? And... Are you okay talking together, or do you all want to go over to that table? Okay. Have at it.
Good. Okay. So let me let me ask you to wind it down a little bit. And is there is there anyone who at your table, um, you know, was was talking about something or has an experience you'd like to share with the group? Where if I if I ask the question this way, uh, how have you come, um, having experienced the earthen vessel nature of the church, how have you uh, recovered a sense of the treasure? that leads you to still be here. Because what makes us unique in this room is that basically we're all still here. You know, no matter what bad we've seen. Is there anybody that has a a reason they would like to share that has led them to to stay or to come back to the church? Despite knowing it's the earthenness of its vessel. Kurt, yeah. I think with me, uh, going back again, the way I was raised as a Catholic and you know, I'm a Right. <laughs> but I think I, I lost it there without lack of sort of lack of understanding. And then what brought me back is once I started to read and understand, I could see the vessel and see the treasure. I was mistaking the church as a building and rules and regulations and forgetting that it's not that, it's us. Yeah. That's a neat way of. Would you say I could, I could see the vessel. I could see the treasure. Yeah. See through the vessel to where the treasure was. It's a great phrase. These marine guys are pretty poetic, you know. <laughs> so, so, right. <laughs> so, does anybody else have a, have a what brought you back? You know, why are you still here? Story. Hey. Okay, Marilyn. Roger brought you back, you know. <laughs> Good. Thank you. In a need, yeah. yeah. It's really very unique. Yeah. You want to say more about the need, Sandy, or? seen a lot. I mean, I, uh, 
I think I've, I, I have stories I could tell, and I don't, you know, I want us to 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 move on to. But I, uh, I mean, I was really shaped by, as you all know, by by growing up in the last the last part of the civil rights movement. But but what what particularly struck me that I think has has stayed with me is 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 having this childhood sense that the racism, the racial attitudes were wrong, that that were around me, but but sometimes the people who who held those attitudes uh, in the church and let's say in the church and even I saw this as an intern were some of the otherwise finest, warmest, most hospitable people in the world. I mean there was a I in seminary I took. Uh, I was a campus minister at the University of Tennessee Medical School and the hospital visitor, but on weekends I went down down in the Arkansas Delta in, Han- in Helena, Arkansas, which is just on the Mississippi River and is as deep south and old south as you can get. And it was a church of about 200 members uh, that I don't think is there anymore. Uh, and and there was there was just one particular older couple that were enormously gracious and hospitable and uh, and learned and open-minded, and they just had uh, you know they they spoke of the of the black woman that lived with them and had raised their kids and was still living with them and just used the N-word nigra you know our nigra lady. And it was just like this blot on an otherwise couple that you just loved. And so I, th- I think part of what I inherited from that was not not the black and whiteness of it, but how often how often the the earthenness is is in the most treasured part of it. You know, and I think that's true for Catholics. I mean, I um, I mean Catholics have had no shortage of things to experience the earthenness of the vessel in the last 25 years. I mean, it's just so explicit and public and, you know, the stories are are horrible, but there are so many faithful Catholics that that just keep coming back because somehow, and not not necessarily everybody in this room, but somehow they're able to, to see whatever it is about the Mass or whatever it is about the beauty that brings them back despite... And despite being open and honest about, you know, about the scandals there, so there, there, it's the mixedness of it sometimes that's that's a mystery too, George.
beautifully said. So, and and often the people in the community itself carries us on. I mean, carries us into the future. Um, I mean, there, there's a wonderful prayer that Fred Craddock has that my wife can recite, and I can never recite it, but it's basically uh, something to the effect of getting up in the morning and saying, you know, Lord, I give thanks that I don't have to feel you all the time in order to be carried by you, you know. And it's much better said than that. I've got to write that thing down because I quote it all the time and I never get it right. So anyway, well, thank you for sharing those. So let's go to another one, and that is uh, it's actually the same chapter picking up. It's chapter 4 starting at verse 16. And going to 510. And this, this is a mixture, uh, because we're going to end with, with a, a phrase that is a hymn in our, or at least in our old hymn book, and, uh, I think it is now too, that sort of speaks to what George was saying about we walk by faith and not by sight. That has its own life in our church and in our, you know, as, as a description of where we are in faith. But it's in this, passage that is sometimes read at funerals and certainly can apply pastorally to us as we are are decaying ourselves or, or watching someone we love suffer or decay but it's also a, it's also a passage that's so beautiful it can be it can it can almost be misused so let me read the whole passage from 4:16 through 5:10 so we do not lose heart Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And it's quite possible that Paul is talking here about some sort of persecution or suffering or, you know, being imprisoned and not having enough food. Um, But this certainly is often applied to, in pastoral situations, to people who are dying or or significantly diseased. Uh, For this, and then he says, this slight momentary affliction, which is a phrase I have a little discomfort with, but for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, and what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent or house in which we live is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And remember, Paul is one who used building and house as a really major image of the church. It's an important word for him. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we, at, we are at home or away, we make it our aid to, aid to please Him, our aim to please Him. 
For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. It's it's an interesting thing because this is where Paul's uh, really familiarity with almost the Platonic Greco-Roman body-spirit split uh, in in his thinking or in the thinking of those around him comes through because he's he's basically saying that that ultimately the body doesn't matter that what matters is are the things not seen um, and that's not a particularly Hebraic uh, you know concept but where it where it comes in is um, I, I think is both beautiful and, and difficult is is in that first part, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is waiting, is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. I mean, I've certainly seen people uh, and, and watched people who are, who are seriously ill or dying who, who can genuinely make that statement. I mean, they come to the point of saying, you know, internally I'm strong, even though my outer nature is wasting away. Um, it's... The phrase that that throws me is, um, if you are a person suffering, it's okay to say this slight momentary affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. That's a beautiful way to get to. If you're not the person suffering, you got to be really careful about saying that, right, Mark? As a chaplain, I mean, it's just that's sort of like preaching to somebody. Are, are diminishing the suffering or the, the nature of their illness. But if you're able to say that, and there are certainly, certainly anybody that's been a chaplain or, or been around um, people who are dying know that often it is, the, it is the person who is suffering the most that is comforting those around him, you know, that, that have accepted their condition and, and are able to, to help others. Uh, the second part, I mean, a second use of this is that in verse five, I I often use this as a as a funeral verse, you know, for for a eulogy or for for a sermon. Um, for we know if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And when I use that, it's it's a contrast. I usually use it for people for whom home and family and house has been very important. And, and I use it in the context of saying that as important as those things were in this life, uh, what they experience now is even greater. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. It's a it's a neat verse that connects, that shows the continuity between the richness of life here and the promise of life thereafter. And if you if you had a rich family life here to think of, it's even better afterwards. Is sort of the message I'm trying to say. I'm not. That may be a little bit use of this, misuse of this, but who cares? It's just a funeral, you know. <laughs> you want to use the scripture in a way that's comforting. So, and then the last one is, you know, in this context, he's saying we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Um, to say we walk by faith and not by sight is is a very important concept, um, particularly for those of us in in the Presbyterian Church and other traditions that really value logic and knowledge because there are always people uh, 
who are members of our church or who are considering becoming members or who are attending who have trouble believing if if they can't logically prove it, you know, who just need an intellectual a sense that they're not giving away their minds by believing, uh, whether that's logic or proof or whatever. And, and they're, we attract and speak to people like that. But ultimately, I believe our message has to be um, you can't prove it. You know, you, at some point you have to walk by faith and not by sight. If by sight, if by sight what this passage means is verification. You know, there's just there's a point at which you have to sort of believe on your own and take, take a leap of faith. Uh, but here, what Paul is doing in that last paragraph is connecting sight with the body. And he's very much into something that I think Christians in, in the West have misused sometimes, and that's sort of diminishing the body or, or desexualizing it. I mean, this this kind of language is really popular with with evangelical groups with teenagers where you know half of the effort is just to try to keep them to not have sex which is a legitimate a very legitimate effort you know when you're working with youth but it uh, I, I think it I think the issue is deeper there and can involve uh, in, in his situation where they were persecuted I think they're really trying to say you know our faith keeps going even though our outer nature is is being persecuted or being destroyed or is diseased or we're not getting enough food or, or we're suffering, you know, because of that. So why don't we take, let me see the, the questions I have here and then we'll take a break. We have three kinds of cookies today. Did you all notice? Three. Is this, is this, is this Trinity Sunday or something? <laughs> so, so it's not three times the amount we normally have, but we have three times... Uh, so, uh, so I think what I'd like you to discuss before our cookie monster break is uh, uh, the question I've got, question three. Uh, Paul writes, we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, what do you think this statement means, and how is it meaningful to you if it is, and how is it troublesome to you if it's, if it's not, okay? And... Uh, then does the context below about the decaying of the body shed any additional light on it? So let's let's spend about five to seven minutes, and then we'll have our break on those questions at your table. So back and uh, do two more of these things. Okay, let's do. That's fine. Yeah, you bring anybody. You just got to bet on dessert, you know. So, okay, let's do an, this next one. Is a it's 
a little short, but it's also a little complicated. But I think we can I think we can get through it here, and then we'll the last one will be the thorn in the flesh. So um, so turn to Second Corinthians seven verses seven through thirteen, and this is this is talking about. Godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief which leads us to repentance and worldly grief which produces death. So um, happy topics for a sunny afternoon. But what I'm, I want to give it to you in advance so that you can sort of hear it as we, as we listen to it. But I think what Paul is getting at, and I mean, take the category of grief and just sort of expand it beyond, you know, somebody that's died. Uh, but I think part of what he's going to be talking about here and, and the questions that, I've, that I'm asking you to look at is have there been experiences that you could broadly categorize as grief, which can be you know, the loss of somebody close. It can be the loss of a relationship. It can be conflict you've been through. It can be you know, the loss of a job. It can be any number of things in which you have learned something and it's led you to change for the good okay versus the kind of grief that that has remained for you um, just in the bit you know the bitterness of death um, that that's where the questions are going to go so they may be a little bit off from from the passage but let's listen to the passage in that uh, because I think part of what he's talking about is the is broken relationships he's experienced in the church. Okay, so Second Corinthians seven, seven, yeah, or five. I'm starting at verse five. Yeah, yeah. For even when we, I think I'm right here. I want to make sure that I'm, that I don't have this mismarked. Yeah, for even when we came... Okay, I'm starting at verse 5, actually, okay? So it's chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within. That's actually a pretty good phrase. Disputes without and fears within. Disputes without usually causes fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, a friend. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. It sounds like this was a, um, a a sadness over being apart from the Corinthian church that he had left or that they had passed through a conflict. It's a little hard to tell. But because of Titus telling us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for us, that that led us to rejoice still the more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, this is the the angry letter that Paul, an angry letter that Paul sent to the Corinthians. Uh, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved with you and the letter, uh, with 
with that letter, though only briefly. It's a hard passage, but okay. But now I rejoice, not because you were grieved or hurt, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. It sounds to me like Paul is saying, I overdid it, and I'm sort of sorry for that, but not really. (laughs) But you took it the right way, or you took it in a way that led you to genuinely change. And therefore, you know, you came out with, you know, you came out better. Uh, So that you weren't harmed by us in any way, which is probably not true, because I think we're always harmed even when we learn. Uh, And then verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself guiltless in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the one who was wronged, but in order that your zeal for us might be made known to you before God. In this we find comfort. Okay, it's a hard passage, I granted. I don't, uh, but the question that I would ask, and, and this, you know, this can be asked in a lot of ways, uh, or to a lot of degrees. Um, and, and these are under question four. Within a broken relationship, have you ever experienced a grief that has led you to repentance? And I think to be fair to the text, uh, Paul is interpreting the grief that led them to repentance as as a grief that led them to turn and embrace the faith because he said it brought you salvation. Uh, and I don't want to rule that out in terms of sometimes sometimes relationships are so broken and the grief is so deep, but it leads us to change in a way that, that we genuinely become fully in touch with our faith and what we believe. And, 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 and I'm willing to say that that's salvific. So, But anyway, within a broken relationship, have you ever experienced a grief that has led you to repentance? Or have you experienced a grief that has led you, you know, symbolically to death? Have you learned, what have you learned from these two griefs? I realize this is really personal, and I do ask that if you share something deeply personal that you respect each other's confidences in this but uh, but feel free I think that's fair, yes, that he's talking about. But what he's talking about is, is the experience of grief, all those difficulties. Whatever, whatever went wrong has led you to such grief that, that you have genuinely 
changed, that you have learned something about yourself from it. And just on a on a somewhat shallow level, it's not some it's it's modestly shallow. Um, I have always, I mean, I've been really, for the most part, I've been really lucky in the ministry uh, in not getting a lot of criticism, but I've been at this for 40 years now, and I have received criticism, and I've I've shared with classes before that in, in the middle of my pastorate in Iowa, there really was a concerted effort by a group in the church to, shall we say, no, have me no longer be their pastor. And, and it's something that I survived, and a lot of people don't survive that. But one of the things that I've come out, I came out from that with, is I really did learn. I came to a deeper understanding of why certain people would perceive me in a way that, that they couldn't trust. I mean, I learned a lot about myself. You know, I learned that while I wasn't doing you know what they said in the congregation ended up being very supportive. I, I realized how they could how they could take that from me, and I've always tried to say to to associate pastors and, and people on the staff that almost any criticism you receive has some little gem of truth to it. You know, it usually is loaded with a lot of, shall we say. <laughs> unnecessary additions <laughs> to use to, I mean you know and a lot of times criticism in any sector of our life is you know is way overdone and way blown out but but often there's a little kernel of truth that you can learn from about it uh, and so I think to me that is a grief that leads to repentance I mean if you're able to hear in the midst of all the the pain and defensiveness, well, you know they, I can see where they, they took me this way, you know, interpreted me this way. Then to me, that's a grief that leads us to change and understand ourselves and become closer to who God has created us, uh, as opposed to there are also griefs and experiences that that just break us, you know, whether we can help it or not. I mean, they're. Uh, there are both, and uh, or that we're so bitter about and so defensive about that we never get over. You know that that we, you know, we're fighting. We're fighting something that happened 15 years ago that we've refused to to somehow incorporate into our experience in a healthy way. So that's that's sort of what I I think that's some wisdom behind this passage, and that's that's what the questions are getting at. You know, have you experienced? One or both kinds of these griefs, and you know, what have you learned, or what, have, what are you having trouble letting go of? And it's okay to have. I mean, it's it's better to let go of something. But if if you are still at a point of not letting go of something, that's okay. Say it. By saying it, you'll be one step closer to letting go of it. <laughs> Even though there may be many more steps. So you know, just reveal your deepest, darkest hurt to the people at your table. I mean, you know, what this is about. So you know. Yeah, in a minute or so. Yeah, we got at least seven or eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, seven or eight minutes. Then we're going to go to a thorn in the flesh, which is sort of related. But so go. <laughs> 
So take about another minute and then we'll move on to the next question. Okay, let's let me go on to the next section, and this will be our last one, but I th think is also a good one. So, Okay, let's um, – there's a famous phrase that – let me get the right text here. Yes, there's a famous phrase. We're going to do chapter uh, – in chapters 10 to 12, it's when, it's when Paul's tone turns combative, uh, really against the people that are undermining his leadership. And in chapter – Twelve. Yeah, it's twelve one to ten. I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm confusing myself. Yes, yes, twelve one to ten. So Paul has been challenged by the people, by, by these religious leaders that have come to Corinth after him and are undermining his leadership by saying he's not charismatic enough, he's not a good speaker, he's dishonest, the gospel he's preaching is false. I mean, any number of charges. Uh, including their their belief or statement from what we can tell that they have a special kind of spiritual knowledge that he lacks. Uh, and they are they are boasting in that knowledge I, to some extent. So he talks a lot about boasting. But starting at 12, 1 to 10, he's going to defend himself. And he's going to defend himself by referring to visions and revelations that he has, in fact, had. And but he's going to do that in the third person. I know a person who, in Christ, he's he's not, you know, he's that's himself he's talking about. But then he ends by talking about this phrase that is common in our culture, that in order to combat his boasting and his spiritual experiences and not letting, uh, not not letting him keep his humility, God has given him a thorn in the flesh. And that's the that's the phrase that is common in our culture, and I want us to read the passage and then then think about that in our lives. So at twelve one, it's necessary to boast, 
nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ, which is himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. And then this is the part. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated in these revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So the question five, um, in, in chapters 12, 1 to 10, Paul speaks of one of the most mysterious aspects of his biography or autobiography, a thorn in the flesh. And we've just read the passage. In our common language, we use the phrase thorn in the flesh to mean someone who is a constant irritant to us, like a difficult neighbor, a customer, a student or church member, or perhaps a political gadfly. But it's clear that Paul has something much deeper than this in mind. There is some aspect of his personality or physical condition that he has come to attribute to God as having a reason to keep him from becoming too elated, to trust that God's grace is sufficient for him, and to understand that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Paul never specifies what this is, leading some to speculate that it is a disease, a physical infirmity related to his appearance that people notice at other places in the letters uh, or in Acts, he's, he's described as somebody who was small of stature, someone who may have had a speech impediment because he was always saying, I'm not eloquent. So both of these possibilities have some warrant based on his writings. But the fact that he never identifies what the thorn is has the positive effect of allowing us to consider what our own thorns are and how we have handled them. Um, so the questions are these. 
and, and again, you may answer them as, as in as much detail as you would like, or you may think about them in, in hopefully a deeper way. Is there something in your life that functions as a thorn in the flesh? Share it if you'd like, or following Paul's lead, keep it private. Has it weighed you down and held you back, or have you been able to allow it to drive you further into reliance on the grace of God. What advice might you have for others concerning their own thorn in the flesh? So have at it. Right. Let's go ahead and give me your attention back up here if you can. So thank you for... uh, Thank you for what I hope has been good conversation tonight. Uh, on the, I think the thing that's really that's really interesting about about the thorn in the flesh is that the fact that he doesn't say what it was. If 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 Paul were to say what it was, then immediately all the attention goes on that, and it sort of excludes. Uh, Um, I don't know possible, but this seems like a pretty authentic. This seems like pretty authentic and unedited writing, right? Right at this stage. So, it's a. I've also I've also long equated this with with a story. Those of you who all have had Old Testament know, but Jacob's limp, you know, because Jacob wrestles with wrestles with the angel, and excises a blessing. But is, uh, you know, the angel touches him on the inner thigh and breaks his inner thigh and he limps for the rest of his life. And so the end of that story, yeah, the end of that story is when the sun comes up, the, the angel or the night demon or God disappears. And, and my image is that you, you have this image of Jacob, you know, as the sun is coming up limping. For the rest of his life, and and actually the last verse says, and therefore the Jews don't eat the inner thigh meat to this day because of it. It's like he's memorialized for this limp, and and I think that uh, you know he received a blessing, but the but the blessing scarred him. And Paul saying, I received a vision, but I was also given a thorn in the flesh to. Yes. Well, he he had this Damascus Road experience, which he describes as 14 years earlier, and he indirectly describes that I know a person who was taken to the seventh heaven, and I don't really know what he heard or saw. Only God knows, which is a way a good way of describing a vision, sort of acknowledging that you don't really know what happened. But then, in order to not be puffed up and elated in order to keep that vision in perspective with his life he he says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh and that's I mean that phrase has so much life in our culture because you can almost see it and feel it you know so Larry do you think that he's referring to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus that 14 years earlier Um, I think probably or something that followed thereafter yes 
that was 14 years. Yeah. 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 Right. Or it or it was something that happened later, you know. But I think it's I mean I think it's helpful in our you know in our day and time because it could be I mean you just think of 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 the scars that people carry and we're so much in our culture we're so much more now uh, willing to acknowledge those or at least vocalize them I mean it you know it could be a physical disability it could be a speech impediment which he was accused of it could be you know a psychological impediment it could be you know sexual abuse it could be any number of things that happened to him that mark his life in such a way that he that he never escapes them but but that drive him to to accept the grace of God as being sufficient I mean it's so interesting because to me because the the, the phrase the thorn in your side I mean you, it, it reminds you of something of crucifixion you take out yeah, that's no, true. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, you're wondering, well, can't you do something? Yeah, about can't you that? just pull it out? Yeah, that's out? good. So I've never thought of that. Might have had a whole different yeah. meaning. Yeah. So, but a thorn in the flesh is really prickly. I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever done rose bushes. Yeah. 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 Dale. Right. Right. Yeah. Like he's like resurrected his own self. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. I don't think he was that boastful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's really suffering. And there, you know, I mean, there are people that are, and you know, you know of people in history or in your own lives who, whose life has been marked by suffering, and they still do tremendous things, and it's this mixture, you know, that goes along. I mean. At the risk of being overly cynical and pessimistic, um, (laughs) I think I'm just wondering in my mind whether or not some of the things that we actually ask for come with a thorn in the flesh. Sure. As as the price for what we ask. Yeah. Um, And not necessarily the price, but something that we are thinking that we really Really want. want and looks like this right. actually has almost everything good has that about it. Oh, as right. they say, be careful for what you pray for yeah, or exactly. pray for, yeah. So anyway, um, I did just sneak a half a lemon cookie out there. <laughs> which means there's three and a half left and I would I would advise people to take them or if not you're gonna see a very disciplined ex Marine stuff them into his mouth all at once. <laughs> so yeah, ex-marine, yeah. No, no. So next week, let me say one minute about next week. You're going to read Philemon and Philippians. Philippians is just four chapters, and Philemon is just a page in the book. It's not, it doesn't even have a chapter. It's just verses. Philippians is, has a great hymn that we actually use for the affirmation of faith today, the Christ hymn. Uh, How does it start? I'm, it's at the end of the day. Our affirmation of faith. Yeah, the creed, yeah. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Not the, not the Apostles' Creed, but the...
He did not count equality with God as a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, was born in human form, da, da, da. That's in Philippians, okay? Um, Philemon is a very interesting book, and if you read the introduction, the introduction in this Bible is counter to its traditional interpretation. The traditional interpretation is that Paul is seeking to persuade um, Philemon, a slave owner, to, uh, to Paul has to turn the runaway slave Onesimus in, and Onesimus has become a Christian, and Philemon is a Christian, and Paul is trying to persuade Philemon to accept Onesimus back, not I mean, as a brother, not only in the Lord, but in the flesh. And, and that book has an enormous history of being cited to justify slavery because Paul didn't, Paul was following the law and didn't say, you know, it's wrong that you hold him. It's also a book that's cited as having the seeds of, Paul is really saying, because of our faith, you know, you can't hold, you can't hold another human being. So it goes both ways. The introduction in your Bible, which I don't necessarily uh, recommend to you, although I'm now going to summarize it because I realize people read it, says, no, 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 it's not about slavery at all. They were cousins or brothers, which I just think takes away the way I've taught this book for 40 years. So don't believe it. It's, it's a, but, but as you read it, pay attention to Paul's mode of argumentation. Is he being a high-level diplomat trying to persuade someone to do the right thing? Or is he being passive-aggressive and trying to put a guilt trip on somebody? Who knows? So you can bring all those questions to it because it's only about 15 verses, the whole book. So let's close. Thank you all. Thank you all. See you next week. So.